Well, I hope you guys had a good July 4th weekend. Mine went really, really well until last night at 10.30. I was dog-setting. Myself and the kids are dog-setting for friends of mine. And the dog went out about 10.30. And at 10.30 last night, as I was hoping to get in bed so I could get up and be fresh this morning, uh, a skunk wandered into our yard and sprayed our dog for the dog that we're keeping, not our dog. You'd be amazed how little you can like a dog when it has been sprayed by a skunk and it's not yours. Um, but it got a full spray right in the face. So from 10.30 till midnight, you know that old tomato juice thing? Not true, that's a wife's tale, not true. Tomato juice does not work. Dawn dishwashing detergent, hydrogen peroxide and baking soda. Um, you mix that together and it will blow the dog completely up and then you don't have to worry about it is, is, uh, <clears throat> but I smell like a skunk and I hope y'all don't notice it well we're talking about the story of Joseph and forgiveness it's a beautiful story uh, forgiveness let's talk a little bit just about that subject because you know different words have different meanings to different people I remember a few years ago well it's been goodness it's been a decade ago friends of mine had a, a horrible experience with a babysitter um, they had one of those nanny cams and their worst nightmares were revealed well, not the worst nightmares, but bad nightmares were revealed by the nanny cam with this babysitter. And uh, the, court, the, the case actually went to court. It was really, really a sad deal. And I remember uh, my friends sitting with me one day processing what had happened to their two children. Uh, it was not sexual abuse, thank God, but it was physical abuse, slapping and just beyond inappropriate and my friends it's just a, a nightmare for parents my friends were wrestling uh, they were people of good moral Christian sensibility and I remember them wrestling and wanting to process with me uh, what their responsibility was toward this person and there was prosecution the person did actually spend some time uh, but beyond prosecution this person, not that this matters, but I suppose it does uh, to some degree, emotionally, this person actually was a member of their church. And they were wrestling, and I remember as they wrestled trying to figure out how to, in their mind, forgive this person. The question that begged in all of this was not just, how do I forgive this person, what's it mean to forgive this person? If we threw that out right now and just kind of turned around into groups of six or eight, um, Barrett, that'd be a fascinating conversation to overhear. What's it even mean to forgive? Webster's Dictionary, which is not, you know, my ultimate moral source, but Webster's Dictionary said, forgiveness means to send away or to let go of, to let go of my desire to punish. To let go 
of resentment. And yet, the person needed prosecuted. Is that punishment? At what point is mercy undue? The Greek word that Jesus and the apostles used again and again was aphiomi. Um, and I may not be pronouncing that right. I'm years out from my freshest Greek class. But aphiomi, I do know this. Aphiomi means to send away. What is being sent away when we forgive someone? I think relationally... I think relationally we are called to three levels of relationship with people. The first is we do know that Jesus has called us to love our enemies. I can't imagine someone that I would consider more of an enemy than someone who's abused my child. So I'm called to love, I'm called to care deeply. I'm called not to experience some warm emotion, but love in its strictest sense, to want the best for and to care deeply and to value another person. So, you know, again, to talk about such extreme things as child abuse may skew this conversation. And yet, on the other hand, if you don't take this to its practical end, then we're just abstracting about irrelevance. What was their relationship to this person? And, and I will say this about this person. This person appeared to be, and their life since has proven them deeply remorseful. And yet, there's this whole other strand of pathology that would even allow an adult human to do this to a child. So pathology notwithstanding, this person, it did appear, was remorseful and accepted their punishment and actually processed through that punishment, did a lot of work and therapy and I trust is a, a corrected, better human today. Unequivocally, we're called, they were called as a family, they were called as a couple to love that person. Love your enemy. Jesus said, if you only love those that are easy to love, then you've done no better than the Pharisees. But he said, if you really want to be seen as a child of your heavenly father, then the test is to love your enemy. Paul, even reflecting on Jesus' death, said, you know, scarcely for a good person would someone die. But while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet averse, Christ died for us. It's an amazing concept. I, I mentioned the other day that the thing that really connects Gandhi, King, and Jesus together is not their love for the marginalized. But the thing that set these three activists over and against so many activists is they loved the perpetrators. King continually, in a non-pejorative tone, appealed to those that were being hurt and abused to not give in to hate, but to love. He literally referred to us as his sick white brothers and sisters. 
And by sick, again, Drew, there was no negative tone. He literally believed we were ill. And when he metabolized in his body our punishment, our punishing acts against him, he literally believed that there was a, metabol a metabolism of grace through which he could transform us by how he endured our abuse. <laughs> Even that, I suppose, could be taken to... Uh, extreme forms and unhealthy forms. We're called to love everyone, to want the best for them, to care deeply, to not lose sight of the fact that they are beloved. And as my old mentor, L.H. Hardwick, told me, in 59 years of public ministry, he said, as I reflect, I don't know that I've ever met an evil person, but I've met thousands of broken ones. So we're called to not give up on people and to love them. The second level of relationship, though, is, is significantly different. And it's the one that the story of Joseph really begs us to take a look at. And that is the question of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to send away someone's guilt or their sin? You know, Webster says we send away our resentment. Uh, the New Testament context is more than that. It's not just about us. We're not just sending away our resentment and our desire to punish. We're literally, in a New Testament form, we're sending away their sin. We're sending away their mistakes. We're sending away the grievances that they've committed. We're sending them away. Does that mean we're acting like they don't exist? This particular babysitter implored my friends to forgive her. She begged them to forgive her with tears. She did not try to avoid. She did not spin the story. She stood in front of the judge and accepted what came to her. And then I, I was actually in the courtroom she turned and made an appeal to them, and they couldn't look at her. They, let her. they later did visit with her. The wife actually went and visited her with, when she was in the jail, or it was actually a, it wasn't the jail, it was the state penitentiary. And there was forgiveness. She sent away her crime. Forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive? How do you send something away? It, is, is it sending it away such that you're acting as though it never happened? So does forgiveness, now let's talk about the third level of relationship, does forgiveness mean that they would trust her to babysit again? Everybody's shaking their head. Trust is an entirely different thing than forgiveness or love, right? Of course you wouldn't. You'd be foolish to trust them again. So tr uh, forgiveness, love may not necessarily include forgiveness. And forgiveness may not necessarily include trust. Now the iffy statement is that forgiveness statement. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the great you know, just brilliant minds, philosophers of the 20th century. He said, forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. A person who admits no wrong 
can accept no forgiveness. Hmm. So this begs the question, is repentance, change of mind, apology, and correction on the part of the person who has made the grievance, is that necessary for forgiveness to be full? Lewis was positing that it was. Lewis said, you may love this person, but forgiveness, forgiveness is a tandem event. A person who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness because the very hands that accept forgiveness are those that have divulged and let go of the guilt. Now, we get a little ticky with this, and we're not legalists around here, so we can play with words and understand the ambiguity in words, and nobody feels like our eternal consequences hanging over getting this text right. So we have a bit of ability to do midrash and get it wrong, and uh, just to wrestle with it a bit. Forgiveness. Jesus said, except a person repents and change their minds, they will perish. And again, take that out of the context of burning in hell forever. That's not the point Jesus was making. But I think he was pointing to what Lewis said. If a person, he didn't say if a person isn't forgiven, they'll perish. Really, my soul's demise or advantage isn't as dependent upon as much what you do as it is what I do. Jesus said, except a person repent, except a person see what they've done, they'll perish. Unless there is enough enlightenment that their hands can let go of their own sin, it doesn't matter if other people have let go of it. They haven't let go themselves. You remember in Matthew 18, Jesus said, this is very interesting, Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins or offends, go to them and correct them. Now, this is a sensitive verse for sure. Those of us that try to live our life by 12-step principles, we immediately come into tension with this whole idea of going to somebody else and correcting them. Because we've learned, we've learned that it generally is best to stay in your own hula hoop when it comes down, you know, love the sin, uh, or love the sinner, hate the sin. As my friend said, well, you just go ahead and hate your own sin. Don't worry about mine. So I think there is some tension here of staying in your own hula hoop. And yet I hold that truth in tension with the fact that we may not be our brothers and sisters keepers, but there's something about the writer of Hebrews saying, provoke one another to good works, that does make sense to me. And I, I think I will stay in my hula hoop until I have a relationship with someone where it is clear they have invited me periodically, Drew, if I want to cross over into their hula hoop. If I have that kind of relationship, but boy, that, that relationship has got to be established mutually before you start seeing yourself as the grand corrector of humanity. Stay in your own dadgum hula hoop. You've got enough mess in your hula hoop to not get over into mine. And I got enough mess in mine, Ted, not to get over into yours. But with that said, in that same world of 12 steps, there is this thing called sponsorship. 
And there are these things called meetings where we don't cross-talk. And yet sometime at the end of the meetings, we do hang around. And by even hanging around, Steve, we're saying, I'm open. So stay in your hula hoop, yes. But to some degree, we are our brothers and sisters, caregivers, if not keepers. So there's a tension here. Jesus, it's very interesting. In most translations, in my King James, I got a new King James here in front of me. The text literally says, if your brother or sister, well, it says brother because it wasn't writing to sisters, but we're trying to be inclusive around here. If your brother or sister, if your sibling offends you, you'll notice something in the old King James and several of the uh, 20th century translations. It literally says, if your brother or sister offends you, and the you is in italics. You know what that means? That means the you is not in the original text. The original just text says, if your brother or sister makes a mistake, if your brother or sister sins. It doesn't even have to be about you. Now that's interesting. Because sometimes in our narcissism, we always think it's about us, right? The issue, as we have written the text, is if my brother or sister offends me. Actually, Jesus said, if your brother or sister just offends. It doesn't even have to be you because it's not about you. It's about the fact that they have made a mistake that's going to harm them. If your brother or sister sins, Jesus literally said, go to them privately. Don't talk to anybody about it. It's nobody's business. But if your heart is touched by their unhealth, automatically when your heart is touched by somebody's unhealth, you probably ought to spend about three days of introspection before you move on it. Because another thing that we've learned in the 12-step world is if you spot it, you got it. And more and more, the things that really bug me about you. You know why they bug me about you, Darren? Because you are a mirror for me. But if your motives are as pure as they can be, because none of our motives are ever completely pure, we are all a mixed bag in our motives. Jesus, I suppose, had pure motives. The rest of us were a mixed bag. You spend a few days, you sort through those things, you're willing to admit your own flaws, and you in love really feel that this brother or sister needs correction, then Jesus said the first thing you've got to do is you've got to make it as private as you possibly can and go to them and talk to them. Privacy. Why? Because exposure... Create shame. And, and I'll tell you, repentance is hard enough without having to do it in front of a crowd gawking. So if I really love you, Drew, and I see something I think is unhealthy in your life, you and I probably have that kind of relationship. I, I know that if you call me, we have enough of a relationship that you're probably one of the few people that could probably say something to me. Painful. Wouldn't like it but I would trust. I don't think you have an ulterior motive with me. 
You know how long it takes to be in a relationship with someone to where you can actually be comfortable, Jeff, that they don't have ulterior motives? There's a lot of life that has to be lived. You cannot manufacture the kind of relationship that feels so trustworthy that I can look at a person and say, I don't think they have a dog in the hunt except they care for me. Those are special relationships. If you got three or four of those, you're a lucky person. But nobody has hundreds of those, and we need to think about that the next time we feel like correcting someone. Go to them privately, Jesus said. This is why I think repentance is so important. And I lean toward, and again, a lot of this is semantics, so don't nail me doctrinally, but I honestly believe that forgiveness in its fullest form requires repentance. I really do. I really... I'm not saying in order to go to heaven and live with Jesus forever. I'm, I'm not talking that old language of, you know, you're hanging over hell. But I'm talking about for your soul to really be made. This whole thing of just forgiving everybody, regardless of what's happening inside of them, I don't think, I think that's demeaning the idea of forgiveness. Jesus said, if they sin, go to them. Listen to this, listen to this, and hear the relationship in this. Jesus said, if they repent, did you hear that? If they change their mind, if you sit down with me and I look at it and say, dang, I got to look at that. I don't want to, but I think this one's on me. Jesus literally said there, if they repent when you've gone to them and there's that mutual love and there's correction and they you're a mirror for them and and they see that there's been a blind spot here that they've missed then Jesus said this profound statement he said if she repents you have gained your sister did you hear that you have gained your sister in other words this is a relational deal. This whole deal of being willing to admit wrong. It, it's about relationship. The implication is, if they don't repent, then there's a breach in the relationship. This relationship is challenged because of inappropriate action. And, and you're just not, you're not back to that sibling mutuality. But the interesting thing is, Jesus said, if they don't repent, don't give up. Go find somebody you trust, and the only way this is going to work is to find somebody they trust. Find somebody, still with a great push for privacy, find somebody that you mutually trust, maybe two or three, and take them with you, if that person is willing, and sit down and say, can we look at this further? There have been two times in my life, now I've done that several times, there have been twice in my life, David, where I sat down with the people, with the two or three that we both trusted, and by the time it was over, I was the one who was wrong. Now that's a doggone thing. When you have gone through this whole process, Drew, to correct this person, and you're sitting there with these two or three objective people, and they look at you by the time it's over, Tim, and they say, hey, Stan, I think this one's on you. 
And you look at them and say, that's not why I brought you here today. <laughs> but if you're not willing for that, then you don't need to be leading that charge. If that's not a distinct possibility, Stephen, if that's not a distinct possibility, then your motives are questionable as to why you even brought them here. But Jesus, listen to the refrain again. Jesus says, but, but if they repent, second time, but if they repent, if they change their mind, if they look at it and say, in my hand, no price I bring. It's not my brother, not my sister. It's me, oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. I get it. I don't have any excuses. Jesus said again, you gained your brother. See, this is about relationship. He says, but if they don't repent, give up. No, 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 no. No, he said, if they don't repent, take it to the church. Take it to leadership. I grew up in a church that interpreted that very widely and a couple of times a year there were opportunities for the airing of grievances in a public forum. I'm glad I don't go to that church anymore. Could you imagine? When Jesus said take it to the church, he was certainly talking to the trusted leadership of the church. And Jesus said, if the leadership of the you hadn't even gotten to the leadership of the church until you've exhausted two other efforts before. There's a process here. My mentor, L.H. Hardwick, that I quote all the time, told me one time, somebody in our church had made a mistake. He brought them in. A couple of family members were there. I thought it was such a huge mistake that I thought it needed to be put in the bulletin. And Brother Hardwick set me down, and I will never forget, Doug, what he said to me. He looked at me and he said something. I cannot get it exact, but it's essentially this, and it just tastes right. He said, the correction should never be more public than the error. Think about that for a minute. The correction should never be more public than the error. Your child makes a mistake within the privacy of your home. Are you going to take them to their classroom in front of all their peers? This, this whole fad that came out a few years ago of parents putting signs up on the internet or in their yard to shame their child, Linda. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. And man, I can use it. I, I, I grew up in a religion layered with guilt and double entendres of shame. I can, I can go there in a hurry, passive-aggressively, sarcastically. Uh, I can take this 18-year-old and an 11-year-old that are given to my life, and I can reduce them quickly with words. But I have... I don't know one time... Nina's a sensitive soul. I don't know one time that I have ever corrected her in front of her friends that it served her to an advantage in her soul. I don't know one time. I know several times that I've humiliated her in front of her friends only to watch her quickly capitulate and say, I'll never do it again. 
but really what she's saying is, oh my God, please let this moment end. Just get me out of here. That's why I said it last week. When Jesus met the woman at the well and he had to talk about how she had been married five times and was now living with a guy, I am so grateful that he looked at the disciples and said, go into town, just go. Why? Go get some food. And when he comes back, he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of to do my father's will. They're like, you just sent us into town to get food you didn't even want. No, I just needed you gone because it's hard enough for a woman's entire life to come crumbling down on her right now and to have to admit that she's been drinking sewage water her whole life. She's so thirsty. But to have 11 or 12 gawking men looking at her while she's being brought to that moment, no. That's why when they drugged the other woman out who had been caught in the act of adultery, that accreted story in John 8, that's not in any of our original text until about the fourth century, but it's still a brilliant story. And I don't think it being in the text undermines the text. I think it's one of those stories that had been held in oral tradition and it persisted in oral tradition until somebody in the fourth century said this ought to be in the book. Because it's a great story. You remember... I have heard a hundred preachers preach messages about what Jesus was writing on the ground. But it occurs to me that if he would have wanted us to know what he was writing in the dirt, he would have told us what he was writing in the dirt. But the story lead doesn't say what he was writing in the dirt, it just says that he was writing in the dirt. So the important part of the story is that Jesus was writing in the dirt. Well, why is that important and not what he was writing? He may have been doodling for all we know. But it was the most gracious doodling he could have done. Because when a woman was caught in the act of adultery, they did not re-robe her. And if she did robe herself in that process of being caught and drugged to the place, they would at least disrobe her to the waist. So this woman, these are religious people who believe when they caught somebody red-handed, the quickest way to get repair in that person's soul is to layer them with as much shame and humiliation because maybe that'll... So they disrobed her and they brought her and while the entire group of them gawked at her, because I honestly want to just talk to the Pharisees a little bit here and say, was this story about adultery or was it about voyeurism, peeping toms and looking in people's windows? But these men drug her, disrobed, and when Jesus saw her coming, he's the only person in the whole crowd that quit looking. And the Bible said when he saw her coming, as the crowd looked, Jesus because she didn't need one more set of male eyes on her. And I would love one day to ask Jesus, what were you writing? And Jesus say, nothing. I was just scribbling. I just looked down. <clears throat> and if they repent, Jesus said, the third time he said, you've gained your brother. 
You've gained your brother. You've gained your sister. If they don't repent, what do you do? Well, now this is where it gets a little sticky. Jesus said after that third level of action where you've gone to the church and, and even the leadership. You know, if you ever get Carol Bruce Agar, Carol Anglin, Tara Hamilton, Kathy Gilliland, Mary Guest, David Serbaugh, Don Scholes, Van Calhoun, Steve Hartman around you in a moment of brokenness, I want to just tell you something, you're in good hands. When David said, oh God, don't let me fall into the hands of man, let me fall in the hands of God, you will not come closer to falling into the hands of God than those nine people. Hope it never, doesn't ever happen to you, but if it does, you're in good shape. Their eyes will be cast appropriately down. I, I can vouch for that. <clears throat> Jesus said, but if that doesn't work, because sometimes it can't. Some people just bust through those rock bottom moments and they just cannot. They're like Esau. They can't find a place to repent. They can't find the place to say, I'm sorry. They can't get off the track. They're just stuck. Jesus said, then here's what you're going to have to do. Listen to the relationship in this. You're going to have to treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. Now, I used to read that. If they repent, you've gained your brother. If they repent, you've gained your sister. If they repent, you've gained your sibling. But finally, if they don't, DeMarco, I heard Jesus say, treat them like a sinner, tax collector. And then it occurred to me one day that Jesus got torn up by the religious folk all the time because he was a friend of, uh-oh. Jesus said, if they repent, you got a brother. If they repent, you got a sister. That's relational. It's a deep level of connectivity, mutuality, filial love. Mutually symbiotic. That's a, that's a good one. That one, trustworthy, both ways. But if they don't repent, it's not treat them like a sinner. It's, well, now you're going to have to treat them like a sinner. Well, how do we do that, Jesus? Jesus said, love them. Have dinner with them. All you're doing in that moment is refusing to be an enabling codependent. He didn't even say, you have to cease all relationship. He said, just make sure they understand the nature of the relationship. Because the last thing you want to do is surround their unhealth with what appears to be your indifference while providing them within the haven of your relationship a destructive environment to continue destroying themselves and their family. So when you sit down with them, I don't know what our words would be today. I don't think our words would be brother and sister and tax collector and sinner. I don't think those would be our words. I think 2,000 years has refined our language, but I don't think it's refined this concept. I think we're still called to measure and be in relationship with people, but sometimes those relationships have to be governed by boundaries 
And sometimes the most merciful, loving thing that you can do is to have a safer distance relationally. Not only for yourself, but for them. So it's no longer, if they don't repent, treat them like a sinner. He was the friend of sinners and was constantly at dinner with them. And I think he mastered the marvelous touch of being able to look at a woman who had had five marriages and now for whatever reason had either given up on marriage or marriage had given up on her and she was living with a guy. And look at her and say, this is a problem, but it's not the problem you think it is. And while all of the religious world would have looked at her and they would have, um, you know, done a diatribe or a Jeremiah on divorce and remarriage and relational ineffectualness and, you know, all of that stuff. Jesus looked at her and said, you know what I think the problem is? And I can just see big old tears running down her cheek. No, but I wish I knew. And he looked at her and he said, I think you're thirsty. And for whatever reason, I don't think life has ever advantaged you to find the clean water. He said, I don't think you've got a problem with men at all. I think you've been drinking tainted water. And I remember when I was in Haiti that time, and I saw a child scooping up sewage water, drinking it. I lunged for that child, literal sewage water that child was drinking. I lunged for that child to say no. And my missionary friend, Karis, grabbed me and she said, are you going to give them a bottle of water? Are you going to be here to make sure their water is always potable and clean? Pulled me back and I watched the child drink. Because in the absence of clean water, of course you're going to drink sewage water. And when you drink sewage water, your body is going to get so toxic. But at least you're still alive and hydrated. How do you condemn people for drinking sewage water when it's the only source of water they have? And Jesus looked at her and said, Would you like to drink water? that if you drank it, you would never thirst again. And she said, please, please, with all of thy getting, get understanding. I'll tell you something else he told me, my mentor. He told me, because I asked him one time, I said, how did you get to be such a merciful man? And Carolyn, that guy that pastored you all for a long time, he said, I wasn't always. He said, I used to be an exacting hard nose, hard bitten. And I cannot even imagine L.A. Chardwick that way. But in those years when he pastored up where 440 is now, a little street, a couple of streets called Rose and Sadler, when he started that church in 1949, he said, for the first 20 years, he said, I was exacting. I took people to task. I held them accountable. I called them out. And he said, not only was it not working for the congregation, it wasn't working for me, and my soul was just withering. And he said, one day, I was sitting in my living room, and he said, I was grieving, people leaving the church, people mad, me calling them out. It was very clear, I was righteous, they were, un I, I had them dead to right, and he said, I was just dying. 
ministry was dying. This is a guy who pastored 40 years before he ran 500, and in the years 45 to year 60, his church grew to 8,000 members, and he became one of the 50 most influential pastors in our country after 40 years. Because he never stopped learning. Never. He brought me there when I was 26, and by my third year, he was letting me preach Easter and thrilled to death when I did good. Wide-hearted man. I never knew him in his exacting days. But he said that day, after 20 years of pastoring, holding people accountable, making sure that, you know, the P's and Q's are all... He said, I was sitting there, and he said, I said, God, I can't do this anymore. It's killing me. And he said, I looked over, and there was my Bible sitting beside me. And he said, I pulled it open and just flopped it out there in my lap like we do, looking for a word. And he said, the first thing my eyes saw, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the, no, the book of Proverbs, with all of thy getting, get understanding. And he said, when I read that, with all thy getting, get understanding, he said it was like a flood of the people I had executed through the years, a flood of those that I had taken to task and held accountable and corrected for their sins. He said they just passed before me, just their pictures and their faces. And he said that verse, with all I get and get understanding, and he said I literally felt like something, like lightning struck me, and he said it knocked me out of my chair, and I lay on the ground, and he said I wept for two hours. And Drew, he said, when he got up from that weeping, he said, I never saw human beings the same way again. With all thy getting, get understanding. Because the one who arrested him that day was the one that hung on a cross and looked down through the pain. And as the angels unsheathed their swords to swoop down, he lifted his fingers from the nail that constrained him and said, stop. And he whispered, Father, forgive them. And all of heaven screamed, on what grounds should they be forgiven? And Jesus looked at those who persecuted him the same way King looked at his sick brothers and sisters. And Jesus said, they do not know what they're doing. And did you know the lesson that life is teaching me is that most people, Aaron, are doing about as good as they can do today with all the days that have brought him here, or brought them here. Most of us are doing about as good as we can do today, but with today, tomorrow, we ought to do a little better. And tomorrow we won't do as good as we'll do the next day, but I tell you what, I hadn't met a person yet. Now, I've met people that aggravate me. I've met, had met people that I think did me wrong. But I don't think in retrospect I've ever met a person who woke up that morning and said, you know, I want to be wrong today. I want to be mean. Yeah, I don't think I, I, I meet people all the time I think get it wrong. But David, I don't think I've ever met anybody that I think came into that moment and said, my goal in life at this moment is to fail. Most of us are doing in the moment with the accumulation of our life and our past, the books we've read, the people we've met, the events that have happened. Most of us, Baird, are doing about as good as we can today with what we've got. 
And if by grace we are good to one another in that process, it just might be that tomorrow we'll do a little bit better. And if we don't, hopefully there will be people in our life that know what it means to really treat somebody like a sinner. Because probably sometime I am, and sometime I need. But if you ever want to treat me like a sinner, cook dinner for me. That's the way Jesus treated people like sinners. Frederick Buechner said, when somebody you've wronged forgives you, you're spared the dull and self-diminishing throb of a guilty conscience. When you forgive somebody who has wronged you, you're spared the dismal corrosion of bitterness and wounded pride. For both parties, forgiveness means the freedom again to be at peace inside their own skins and to be glad in each other's presence. I'll read you this and we'll go home. Forgiveness affords us the ability to be comfortable in our own skin and in one another's presence. I tell you how you know that a relationship is experienced in repentance and forgiveness. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me so that no one stands with me but my brothers. See? Love and forgiveness never includes unnecessary people in the process. Everybody out. Love and forgiveness never includes, Cassie, one unnecessary set of eyes. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh were in the next room. They heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Twenty-two years of prison and bitterness and pain. I am Joseph. I have waited for this moment. I have measured my words. I have rehearsed this moment. I knew what I was going to say when I got you boys before me. And now I am here, and my heart has been so healed that all I could say was, I am Joseph. Is dad still alive? Emily Dickinson said, the wound grew so large until my whole life fell into it. Later in a biography, she said, I'm not certain that it was the wound that was so large or it was my life that was so small, but one life should never fit in one wound. I tell you how you know you're forgiven is when you've crawled out of that hole of bitterness and the issue that you thought was the issue for so long ain't the issue anymore. He looked at him and said, I'm Joseph. How's dad doing? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And I know that feeling of having the power of the right position and the ability to forgive. And you forgive and they kiss your ring and other things. 
And then you leave, Steve, with them forever feeling uncomfortable around you. Joseph looked at them and said, I'm Joseph. His dad's still alive. And the brothers backed up against the wall. And Joseph looked at them and said, come near to me. Do not be uncomfortable in my presence. I tell you how you know you're forgiven is when you don't want the forgiven uncomfortable in your presence ever again. Until then, you haven't forgiven. What you've done is deferred the debt into a high interest rate amortization schedule that you're going to take out in monthly installments from their guilt and their shame. And your magnanimity is not that you forgave. As a matter of fact, that high interest payment plan has nothing to do with forgiveness. Joseph said, let yourself off the hook. Don't be dismayed in my presence. We're good. It's a beautiful story of forgiveness. Don't you love these stories? Let's still our hearts for a minute. Let's think about how it applies to us before we go home. With our hearts just in complying. We are grateful to learn how to stay in our hula hoop. We are also grateful for the gracious community of hula hoop mixers. Thank you. Great God, thank you that we can find love for one another that in the midst of spotting it and godding it, in the midst of being mirrors for one another, we can provide grace, not humiliation, mercy, not shame, correction, not enablement. May you continue to heal our hearts lovingly and mercifully one with the other in the context of these beautiful relationships called Grace Point. We will not do this perfectly but we do it pretty well and this week we're going to do it better than we did it last week because we have one week more under our belt sweet Christ may it be so we pray in your name and God's people said amen, amen. forgive and love love and forgive be good to one another we'll see you Wednesday night for Midrash Midrash